As we're getting ready and you take out your Connect card along with your Bibles, let me encourage you, if you're a guest of ours, to please fill out yours as well for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a place on the front side toward the bottom where you can sign up for our weekly pastor's coffee. Every Sunday morning, we come together and give you an opportunity to get to know us a little bit better, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. In addition to that, before you go today, if you're a guest of ours, please stop by Guest Central, which is that countertop on the left side as you're going out. We're having a new sign uh, made for that section so you'll know exactly where it is, but describe it as you head out toward the door just to your left. And there's a stack of books called The Case for Faith. You want to know if you are a believer yourself, you may have people asking you, why do you believe what you do? If you're not yet a believer, you may have your own questions about what we're talking about today. Why all this talk about blood? Blood is gross. We try to stop blood whenever it flows, and we're talking about flowing blood, and what is all that about? We're going to hear a little more about that in these next few minutes. But I invite you to take a copy of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. Take it home with you as a gift from our church family to you just to say thank you for you being with us this morning in worship. You got your Connect card there with you, and on the bottom... There's a couple of things that we're going to be, I'm going to be asking you to consider in a few minutes. They sound a little um, nebulous right now. Walk in a deeper union with Christ. Walk in a deeper union with fellow believers. But I think when we finish this time, you'll understand exactly what it is that the Lord, I believe, wants us to hear today. You know, this is a strange generation to be a part of. Because as we move out of modernism into postmodernism, so many things that we always assumed have been thrown on their heads. Truth, in many people's minds, has become relative. If it's not true for me, it's not true for me. It doesn't matter. There is no objective truth. Truth is whatever you perceive it to be. And as silly as that may sound to some of us in our 40s, 50s, 60s, it is absolutely ingrained in our millennials and our Gen Xers as they try to wrestle with, well, I'm glad that's good for you, but I don't really need that in my life. But what happens as a result of that is all kinds of other things flow out from there, and one of them that I want to touch on today has to do with rituals, traditions. Do they still have value? Are they necessary? It's interesting how the generation that's coming along behind ours is not sure how to answer that question. Because on the one hand, they absolutely affirm the fact that ritual is, is meaningless. It doesn't, add, it doesn't add any value to anything, and yet they still long for them. Some of the biggest weddings I have ever attended have been ones by postmodern, unsaved millennials who would tell you a wedding is nothing. All that matters is did you sign the piece of paper. And yet, Man, they really put on the dog, i got to tell you. <laughs> and it even creeps into the church. This question about traditions, and, and, and have, we, have we put our own traditions ahead of Scripture and what the Bible teaches us? Do we follow our own preferences, our own backgrounds, our own um, uh, cultural preferences over what the Bible teaches and what it says? And we come to the realization that God creates 
experiences, and oftentimes what we do is then we create or we develop a ritual to memorialize that. God created marriage. We have weddings. Celebrate that. God destines because of the nature of a sinful world in which we live in our own sinful humanity that we will not live forever in this life. We will someday die by God's divine plan and fiat, and we come up with funerals. And in the church, there are two basic rituals. One happens just behind that screen where there is a pool, a tank, that we fill with water. A person who is a new follower of Christ walks into that water, answers some questions that may seem routine but are very important, thereby testifying with their mouths their faith in Christ, and then they are immersed into that water, signifying a death to an old way of life and a new life in Christ. The other one is on the table in front of us, covered up for reasons that Greg and I have done some research on, with a white cloth. We came to find out that used to, in the ancient days, there was no covering. Covering came about when people would meet outside in brush arbors and they covered over the elements to keep the flies from getting into the juice in the cup. That literally is why. Now, I think it's a beautiful thing to cover the table and then to uncover it, but there are two rituals. Do they still have meaning? And more deeply, are they really rituals or are they commands? And how do we differentiate the two? So with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. A minute ago, Greg read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the the basic text. Now, in all four Gospels, There is some type of account, John's is a little bit different, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is the story of the actual Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples and instituted what we do today. Now, how we do it, the manner in which we do it, that really is a tradition. It really just is a ritual. I know that Jesus did not go to the local Lifeway store and buy little squares of unleavened bread and say, each of you take one of these little squares and put it in your mouth and chew it up when I say go. Okay, There were no little plastic cups with welches poured into it. But we understand that beneath our cultural traditions of how we celebrate this table, there's something more than a tradition. There's a commandment and a response. And so this morning, I want us to spend a few minutes talking about three relationships that are represented at this table. The first one is our relationship with Christ. The second is our relationship with each other, and the third is our relationship to a lost world. First of all, our relationship with Christ. What does this table say to us about our relationship to Christ? Well, we as Baptists, because we're so nervous that someone will get some kind of idea that there's some kind of magical power in the actual act of taking the bread and the cup, are very, very big on calling this a memorial meal, a remembrance. Matter of fact, our table says, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus' words himself. But is there something in that remembrance that gives it more strength, almost a mystical, not magical, mystical spiritual power 
reminder, resonance in us that speaks to our relationship with Christ? I believe that there is. It is not a sacrament in the sense of it gives you grace because you do it. And the converse, it, you withhold grace if you don't do it. But there is a power in this table and what it speaks to our relationship with Christ. In order to explain that, I need to pull two major teachings of the Bible about Jesus into our conversation very quickly. The first one is the concept of incarnation. And no, that has nothing to do with what you drove when you came to church today. Incarnation literally means the embodiment of the second person of the Holy Trinity into a physical, mortal body. You see, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he was born in a body exactly like every one of ours. And exactly, exactly of those of us that are males. But it was human. It was mortal. He grew. He developed. He experienced all the exigencies of a sinful world and how it invades our lives and our bodies. Although I can't quote you chapter and verse, I have to deduce, and I don't think I'm stretching at all, that Jesus experienced the exact same bodily issues. He probably had a bad piece of fish one day and had a little bit of a stomach issue. He probably got a bad cold from sleeping out in, the, in a damp night, sometimes on his way from one place to another. Jesus' body was absolutely mortal, fleshly, just like ours. So what, you say? So what means, don't you ever think there's something wrong with the fact that you have a mortal body? Because if something was wrong with it, Jesus wouldn't have had one. If the... Son of God himself enfleshed himself in our flesh. That in itself puts God's stamp of approval on our mortality. But it also reminds us that the mortal body that Jesus carried up until the point of his resurrection is not the last kind of body that he had nor that we will have. Because when Jesus was resurrected, he still had a body, but now it was an immortal body. It still could be seen and touched. He ate, he sat, he talked, he walked with his disciples and others. So it was, in one sense, still physical, and yet it was not mortal. Carrying with it the promise that we too would have a life and a body someday that is still physical, but more than just mortal. And so when Jesus calls us to this table and says, here, take this piece of bread and eat it. This is my body which is given for you. He is saying, this body, I'm carrying this body, not because I thought it would be fun to try it for 33 years, just to see what it was like to be one of you guys, because I want to identify with you, and I am giving you my life, my body, my death, so that we can have union together. Because that then leads to the second big Bible teaching, which is the doctrine of redemption. The idea that redemption, our salvation, as Greg said so well a minute ago, could not, or Daryl, one of you said it, could not have been done without Jesus having a physical, there's a physical element to our salvation. So what? So it means that he saves us in our physicality. We're not like other religions where we separate our physical self from our spiritual self. 
There's some religions that try to hate the body and hate the physical and focus only on the spiritual because that's where our true essence is. Yes, our essence is spiritual. Yes, those of us who have gone before us and are now in God's presence, I believe, are still in spirit. They'll be given their new bodies at the resurrection at the end. But our life is focused on how do we live for Christ in these bodies. And so when Jesus brings this bread to us, brings this cup to us, and says, here, this is my body, and guess what? I'm giving it for you. By the way, let's look really at that. Turn back just for a second in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's chapter, Luke chapter 22, in Luke's story, we hear this more clearly than almost anywhere else of the other Gospels. In Luke chapter 22, we have this Luke's version, which he probably got from one of the other apostles, about how Jesus, because Luke wasn't there, he's writing a report. You remember we've studied the book of Luke, and some of you that have been here with us for a while, and you'll remember that. And in verse, 20, verse 19, it says, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body which is given for you. And then you jump down in verse 20, in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. Jesus says, I am giving myself to you, and I am signifying that through this bread and through this cup. Now, beloved, here's where I have to stop and make sure that we understand that we did not create this. This is not some church-designed memorial to remind us of something that Jesus did for us. Jesus himself started this. Does that matter to you? Does it matter to you that Jesus said, here, I'm giving you my body. And what do we do in response? We take it. Does that sound familiar? Could, Could we create our own salvation? No, Jesus has to offer it to us, and our response is to receive from him what he offers to us. The Lord's Supper is a memorial, yes, but a memorial that Jesus created. He offers it. We receive it on faith. And so the first thing that I want us to remember when we come to this table in just a few moments, is that when we take it, we are literally, well, not literally in the sense of physically, but literally, spiritually, we're literally taking it from the hands of Jesus himself. Jesus saying, I am offering this as a representation of what I am doing for you in my body. That's why in John chapter 6, Jesus said that that strange passage about unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was not talking about this meal. He was talking about how his life would enter into us. As as a good friend of mine said the other day, you are what you eat. And in this case, we literally are what we eat. We take on the DNA of Christ as we ingest him by the Holy Spirit into our lives. And this table is Jesus' way of reminding us of that. But there's a second reminder, a second relationship, and that's the relationship we have with each other. Jesus Christ has offered to each one of us to share with him, to take his nature into ourselves and to take, for him to take our nature onto himself so that our sins are now no longer just ours, they are also his. His righteousness is not just his, it is also ours. And then we take it one by 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 one. But then how do we eat it? Together. Because we signify that we are now the body of Christ. 
And I love the way Calvin worded it in his 1541 Institutes. He said, and, and Calvin, you have to remember, and this is true of all of those, those guys back in the 1500s, they were great, great scholars and theologians, but they also were passionate pastors. And you can just feel the pastoral side of John Calvin's writing when he says, and so I cannot scorn a brother. I cannot scoff a brother. I cannot mock a brother without scorning and scoffing and mocking Jesus Christ himself. Because we are all one body. How can my right arm hate my left arm? How can my arms hate my legs or my feet hate my head? We are one body. And all of a sudden, beloved, what we hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, the, bro- the, blo- the bread that we take, is it not all of one body? And the cup that we drink, is it not all of one blood? And then in 1 Corinthians 11, he goes through this whole issue of what was going on in the Corinthian church and how they were dividing. He says, no, no, no. This is what I received from the Lord. You take it together. You are one. And then, what's the next chapter? Let's see, 10, 11, 12. He starts talking about spiritual gifts, which we so often split off of this conversation. But then when Paul says, and now, you are the body of Christ. And you see now how that's reflected out of chapter 11? See how that's reflected out of chapter 10? He says, just like Jesus' body united us, now we are his body. And so we cannot get crossways with each other and still stay in communion with Christ. Oh, now John comes along, doesn't he? How can you say you love your father whom you have not seen when you can't love your brother whom you have seen? You see how it all begins to fit together? This idea that our relationship with each other is intimately bound into this table. Which is why oftentimes I will ask you as we pass the tray, I'll say, look, if the deacon comes to you and you're sitting on the end, you take the piece of bread or you take the cup, and then you take the tray. But rather than handing the tray to your neighbor, first turn to them and serve them. Let them take their piece of bread. Then they'll take the tray and serve it to the next person. So each of us is serving the person down the row from us. A symbol, I understand. A ritual, I know. But it reminds us that we are all one family, one body. But then there's a place, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 again just for a second. Because there's another thing in this passage that just, I don't know, it doesn't bother me, but it's always been difficult for me. And that is this whole thing at the end of the story when he says, Verse 26, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, you know that I'm a literalist. I believe if Paul wrote it that way, I have to read it that way. I cannot spiritualize it. I cannot hypothesize it. I cannot. I have to see, first of all, what did Paul mean when he says, you preach the gospel by taking this meal? Now, how can that be? Most of us in this room are believers. How does my taking that piece of bread, drinking that cup, how does that become the gospel to a lost world? Well, here's how I believe it happens. Here's how we show forth the Lord's death, as some of the older translations say it. I believe it happens when my life, my understanding of my relationship with Christ and my relationship with my brothers and sisters is impacted by taking this bread and drinking this cup. And it changes the way I think. You remember what I've always said? Transformed by the renewing of your minds. So our minds then impact our hearts, and our hearts impact our actions, our hands. 
Now, that's not always the order. I understand that God works in the heart. Don't, don't overplay the metaphor. But the bottom line is, as I begin thinking differently about my relationships, I begin feeling differently about Christ and about my brothers and sisters. And guess what happens out of that? I start acting differently. Some of you will go to work tomorrow, I pray. A different person than you are right now, or than you were before we started this time of teaching. Because now some lights are beginning to come on in your head. You're beginning to say, oh, I get it now. This is not just a little memorial thing that we do to say, this is exactly what Jesus did with his disciples, so we do the same thing. No, 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 no. This is an intimate, spiritual time that brings strength to our relationship with him. It brings strength to our relationship with each other. And then because of we're loving God and loving each other. Oh, wait a minute. Now, where'd that come from? Loving God, loving each other, and then what? Serving the world. So because we learn to love God more deeply and love each other more passionately, then we can serve the world more faithfully because of the transformation that happens inside of us because of this table. It empowers us. That's one thing I just can't seem to get into my head, and so because of that, it's hard for me to get it into your heads. I just acknowledge that right up front. I grew up in a generation where because we were Christians, we just kind of slunk around a little bit. You know, like, just kind of go do your thing. And, 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 and all of a sudden, it dawned on me. What am I slouching around for? Who's more powerful, the one that's in me or the one that's in the world? You tell me. Who's more powerful? Greater is he that is in us. So if I have the greater in me, and I don't mean going out there, you know, throwing my chest around like I'm somebody big and bad, but I'm talking about going in with a humble confidence. I can walk into the lost world and know this is my Savior. This is my God. And no matter what the world tries to throw to me, the gates of hell will not prevail against the power of Jesus Christ and his church. So I go into my job, into my organization, my club I'm a part of, my, my, my schoolroom, my, my classroom, whatever it is, I go in there not in a self-righteous way, not in a hypocritical way, not in a fair, and listen, they'll accuse you of all those things. If you start showing confidence in the gospel, they'll accuse you of being a hypocrite. You know why? Because that is, I mean, that is the North Korean paradigm to a T. We have this one little thing we can pull on you that, that, will, that will make you stop. We'll just launch one more ICBM and then you'll just shut up. Well, maybe not. Anyway. But we walk into a room with the humble confidence of children of God, and they'll begin to accuse us. Check yourself at the door, and then step in in the confidence you are a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one that sits on the throne, the one before whom all will bow, is your oldest brother. and You are his little brother or his little sister. So, that brings us to the Connect card then, doesn't it? Because the connect card says there's two next steps that we could possibly take based on this. Number one is the next step of saying, hey, I need to come away from this table with a deeper understanding of my union with Christ. I need to go back and think again about what it means that he gave his body for me. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, Paul tells us. For others of us, it means, hey, I need to rethink the way I relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm kind of a lone stranger. You know, I just kind of get out there and do my own thing and, and, and miss me and Jesus, and, and I'm just I'm happy as a clam. We don't realize how much we're missing 
Because we don't have that sense of fellowship with one another, that unity with one another. And please understand, it doesn't mean we will always be unanimous at the decision-making level, but in our hearts, we are undivided. In our hearts, we understand that we are all looking for the same thing, how best to glorify God through His church. And by the way, that leads me down to the third one, which you say, well, that's just the one about praying for the family fun day. Well, you know, that really impacts that third point about our relationship to a lost world. Because here's one of the things that's very important. Yes, there were some big stars in the early church, Peter, Paul, Stephen, Philip, a few others. But by and large, we just have masses of unnamed people. But because they were the church, they were not bodies of Christ, they were the body. Of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And what the community in Waterloo will see is not necessarily Greg or Steve or Bob or Mary or Jim or Sally. What they see is what are we doing in ministering to our community. Every week when we take those lunches to the kids. Every time they drive by and see the beacon and remember times that they have been blessed by being in that building with us. Every time something happens in this community, and not that we are declaring ourselves, we're giving God the glory, but they see the instrument through which God is working. So when we have this family fun day, it's not just about a way to drum up a crowd. It's a way to say, we are the body of Christ, and we want you just to come and have fun with us. That's why numbers really don't matter, if you think about it. If we're doing it because we love the Lord and we love each other and we just want to get together and have fun, and hey, why don't you come with us? If 50 show up or if 500 show up, to God be the glory. Or if 5 show up, to God be the glory. Because we are just declaring the Lord's death in our lives until he comes. So I want you right now as we prepare to pray to think about which of these, especially the first two, and also would you be willing to begin praying now that God would work for our family fun day, but especially on the first two. Do you need a deeper union with Christ? If you mark that on your, on your Connect card, it may not be tomorrow because I have an appointment tomorrow, but probably by Tuesday, I'll be emailing you or texting you and saying, okay, I appreciate that, and here's some ways that you can begin to do that. Maybe you say, no, you know, I'm really, to be honest, humbly, I'm pretty good with my relationship with Christ. My problem is I have a hard time in my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes, okay? We can talk about that too. I'm not going to go chase you down. I'll send you a follow-up and give you a chance then to respond back to me as we talk about what that looks like in our life. But in just a moment after we pray, we're going to receive our offering. And when we receive that offering, you're going to have the opportunity to put your Connect card into the basket. And then it will go to the office, and tomorrow, Donna will collate those responses and send them to Pastor Greg and Pastor Daryl and myself so that we can be praying for you. And then most of the time, I'm the one that I will respond to you about what you mark so that you can know that we are praying with you and for you. Are we, are we infallible? Absolutely not. So if you got missed one time, I apologize. We try our best to get everybody responded to, but life happens sometimes. But we do our best. And so as you prepare for that, and especially that last one, if you'll begin now praying about this family fun day, praying about how we can use it as an opportunity to show forth Christ's love, not just for us, but for others who come and spend an afternoon just having fun with us, eating a hot dog and playing cornhole or jumping in a bouncy house or throwing washers or whatever else we may do that day. I have no idea. It's going to be low-tech and lots of fun. But it will give us a chance to proclaim what we have learned right here at this table.
with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you that this table is so much more than just a flat memorial meal, meal, snack. It is an opportunity for us to be reconnected in a great and meaningful way with your son, with each other, and then through those two things with a lost world. So this morning, Father, you've asked me, I believe, in the depth of my heart, to challenge all of us in those areas of our life. For those of us for whom our relationship with you is strained, if your son is not good, we'll have a deeper union with him. For others of us who need to get reconnected to each other, and to those of us who are looking for ways to get out into our world and proclaim Christ's death, his salvation to those around us. I pray that together, as a family, as the body of Christ, we will work to that end. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Would you stand?